But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the REACH podcast, where I, your host, Kieran Fairman, uh, lie to you about how often episodes will be released. I know, I'm behind again. But uh, we've got a couple of studies that are off the ground that are really exciting. Uh, one of which is, is a study looking at resistance training and creatine supplementation in men with prostate cancer on androgen deprivation therapy. So it's a really cool study that I'm really excited about and, and something I've been passionate about looking to do for, for many years. So um, it's only appropriate that I brought in one of the world leading experts on creatine supplementation. Um, because there has been a lot of feedback and, and questions about uh, my study and, and the rationale behind it. So I figured I might as well pull in one of the experts. And uh, Dr. Eric Rawson has a really cool history with this area. Um, he's pretty much one of the dinosaurs. He's been around since people started looking at creatine supplementation, initially in athletic populations. Um, but he's done a lot of really cool work across the spectrum of both performance and health and disease and also look beyond um kind of muscle uh, aspects in terms of you know muscular strength or and uh hypertrophy and also look towards cognition and things like that what's really cool about eric is that he's doing this and he's having this impact from a smaller um school in messiah college in pennsylvania which is really interesting because if you're in this space if you you understand the trajectory of or the kind of traditional trajectory of, of researchers it's generally recommended for for if you want to have a quote-unquote impact in the field you have to go to a huge university you have to get millions of dollar funding you have to be um you know this this big time researcher that's that's all you do and what's cool about eric and his work and and where he's at is that he's a chair of a program there in exercise science and works exclusively with undergraduate uh, students gets them involved with research from an early age does some great work and has built a profile for himself to where he sat on the international olympic committee in terms of uh, supplementation and things like that so he's developed a really cool path for him uh, in his own career and i thought it was really interesting to speak to him not just about the ins and outs of creating supplementation what it is the history of it how it works so on and so forth but also about how he's managed to balance um you know, a chair is a very busy position with maintaining a research profile, with collaborations, with, with developing this this career for himself at, you know, a quote-unquote smaller college or a teaching college, which is really, really cool. So that's it for me in terms of the updates. Um, as I said, my own creatine study is, is off the ground. We've got uh, quite a few participants in and running and really enjoying it. One of the things I love about what we're doing now um, with this study is that we're comparing uh, creatine supplementation to a placebo which the benefits of that means that everyone gets exercise you know because normally we compare um, exercise to usual care which means we recruit by selling the the power or the benefits of exercise and it's going to be great and it's going to be great and then oh sorry you know you're in control see you in three to six months so one of the aspects I really love about this study in particular is that no matter what, everyone gets some form of exercise. So it's it's a cool way of getting people in and, and just seeing everyone getting uh, a benefit from what they're doing. So um, recruitment's going really well. The study's going really well. And hopefully Eric will give you be able to give you more of an insight into uh, supplementation, the, the theory and rationale behind it, and um, the safety and potential benefits it might have. So enjoy the show and we'll chat to you soon. Yeah, listen, Eric, I really appreciate the time uh, you're taking the chat to, to us today. Uh, your work, as I mentioned offline, has been phenomenal, and you're doing it from a really unique space at this um, T3 
teaching college so in Messiah College in Pennsylvania. Is that right? Yes. Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. You know, as I mentioned to you, we're going to chat a lot about creatine supplementation, but um, supplementation more broadly in some of the aspects to consider when looking um, or considering supplementation. Um, but let's kind of backtrack a little bit and give folks a bit of a background into to you, what you're up to, and how you got into this space. You know, I, I my path was not a straight line, which I think is something that resonates with, with a lot of people in our field. Uh, you know, uh, originally I thought I was going to own my own gym, train myself, train other people. Uh, and I wound up uh, in, in a first career in, in the health and fitness business. And uh, uh, I discovered, uh, you know, kind of a passion for, for a deeper level of science. Went back to graduate school and, and really fell in love with uh, research and teaching. And, uh, you know, started down a, a different pathway, uh, keeping my original passions intact in for, you know, making everyone bigger, faster and stronger. But, but learning how that applies to uh, older adults and, and patient populations as well along the way uh, and, and becoming inspired to learn about the benefits of exercise and nutrition uh, in, in all populations. Uh, um, my, my most recent stop and, and possibly my last stop has been at Messiah College. Uh, we're a, a small college in, in central Pennsylvania, in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. And uh, it's my privilege to be the chair of the uh, Department of Health, Nutrition and Exercise Science. So we have uh, applied health science students who want to pursue careers in uh, exercise science, in, in strength and conditioning, in clinical exercise physiology. Uh, many of them are on their way to graduate programs in medicine or physical therapy. We have nutrition and dietetics, athletic training physical education, sport management. Uh, so we, we really serve uh, a number of different types of students who want to involve uh, physical activity in their professional lives. So you're a man of many tricks, I suppose, balancing not only uh, uh, you know, a really great research profile and, and the work you do in supplementation, but a chair of a, a really successful undergraduate department. Well, I, I appreciate that. Uh, it, it's uh, it's been interesting. I never set out to have any uh, administrative or, or leadership type duties, uh, but you, you sometimes gravitate towards uh, different aspects of the field. Uh, it's it's honestly been a, a, a pleasure, uh, and I think this is something that was instilled in me from uh, Dr. Priscilla Clarkson, my my mentor for my PhD. It, it's it's been a pleasure to. Uh, inspire an interest in research in, in undergraduate students. And, and the, there's, there's simply no reason you have to wait until they're graduate students or graduating seniors. Um, we introduce them to what we do when they're freshmen. So we have research methods classes and, and they're participating in the research process very early on in their careers. And, and they often just fall in love with, with the research world and with generating new knowledge uh, around Im improving the quality of people's lives, whether they're athletes or patients, uh, improving the quality of their lives with exercise uh, and, and or nutrition and supplementation. That's so cool that you get them involved at such an early age. And that's something that I mentioned the offline, I'd love to kind of come back around full circle to, the, to how you're managing to build that uh, research at, at the college you're at. But let's kind of come back to creating supplementation and what's interesting to me because you know we come in and we read about what's been done and what's out there and you've actually lived a lot about this i'm half calling you really old here but the fact that you were around um at the you know somewhat the start of this as creating supplementation starting to emerge what what did that look like as you were jumping into the space it, it, it you know what a time to be alive <laughs> It, it, it was quite incredible because, uh, you know, I, I have these two lives. I'm, I'm on the one hand training very hard and, and we're, we're discovering creatine in, in the world of athletics and sport. And then I, I enter into this uh, world of, of, of research and 
for the first time ever in my life, the, the athletic community and the research community are talking about the same thing. You know, for many years, they seemed at odd, at odds in, in, in certain areas like, uh, you know, dietary protein intake or the, the value of resistance training compared to in endurance training. And, and a lot of these discrepancies and arguments still exist today. But, uh, you know, for, for me to take something from the weight room and discover that scientists are, are interested in pursuing this, uh, you know, with, with well-designed research studies was, was absolutely fantastic. So I, I started this when um, it was just beginning. You know, Roger Harris had just published his seminal paper in 1992. Athletes had been experimenting with creatine for a few years before that. But, but Roger's paper that showed, you know, for once, uh, oral ingestion of a supplement you know, did something. It actually got absorbed. It actually got into the muscle. Uh, and then the next year, Paul Greenhoff published his paper showing reduced fatigability and muscle subsequent to supplementation. And, and, and then everything exploded. It was a good time. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. And, and as you said, I mean, explode isn't a word in, in the breadth and the scope of what's been done in the space, particularly with um, creating supplementation and you know, not just performance, but also a lot of health benefits too. Absolutely. It, you know, it, it's uh, the first 10 years or so seem to be hopping from population to population, you know, uh, from weightlifters to rowers to sprinters to swimmers. Uh, and then uh, we published a paper uh, on creatine supplementation in older adults, uh, one of the early papers in that area. And there, there were a few other people. Uh, notably, you know, Mark Tarnopolsky uh, approaching this whole thing from a, a, a clinical perspective, uh, you know, as he's a, a, an MD, PhD, so he's got training in medicine and, and neurology and exercise physiology. And, and the aging papers and the muscular dystrophy papers started to come out and, and uh, it breathed life into this area. And, and I'd like to think it had a, a, a complete impact on, on dietary supplementation research where people really started to think, you know, if, if this reduces fatigue or builds muscle or builds strength, why aren't we giving it to sarcopenic older adults? Why are we just studying elite athletes? You know, uh, and I think it opened people's eyes to the fact that uh, there are many populations who could benefit from, um, you know, a nutritional intervention, specifically something that could augment their, their, their resistance training. Yeah, I suppose that's a good place to start. Otherwise, we'll just have a 45-minute conversation about talking about how awesome creatine is. <laughs> I'm known to... <laughs> Let's backtrack a little bit and talk about, um, you know, what is creatine? Um, is it natural? The usual questions. Where is it found in the body? That type of stuff. Okay, well, creatine is a non-essential nutrient. Uh, that's a term that I, I really don't care for, non-essential because uh, I think our brains go to not necessary, not needed, not valuable when I say non-essential. Uh, in this case, non-essential simply means you don't have to seek it out in your diet. Your body will synthesize enough of it for you to be healthy. Uh, so uh, in the food supply, creatine is mostly contained in, in meat, and, and there are varying amounts uh, between the, the different types of, of fish and, and beef and, and, and poultry, um, you know, uh, a few different units of measurement for, for, for me, uh, there is about point, 0 0.7 grams of creatine in a six ounce serving of, of meat. So you, you could maybe picture yourself going to a restaurant and getting a, a six ounces of, of fish or, or six ounces of, of lean beef. Uh, for, for those of you who don't think in terms of ounces, <laughs> there's, you know, somewhere between two and six grams per kilogram uh, of, of meat. So two to six grams of creatine per kilogram of meat. And uh, normal daily intake, if you're a meat eater, is, you know, about a gram per day. Uh, and then your body handles the rest, synthesizing a, a, about a gram per day. So normal creatine turnover is about two grams per day. Your body's quite easily makes creatine from uh, available amino acids. 
And, and what's interesting and what turned out to be very important for supplementation is that the sites of creatine synthesis are completely separate from the sites of creatine utilization. So because uh, creatine is involved in uh, adenosine triphosphate production, ATP production in your muscles, it has to get into your muscles because it's manufactured in, in other tissues, but not inside skeletal muscles. This turned out to be a good thing because the muscles readily take up creatine. They're, they're designed to absorb creatine because they don't manufacture it. And that's one of the reasons supplementation is so successful because the muscles don't block creatine entry. So if you eat more from the diet or eat more from a supplementation standpoint, uh, the body's quite good at letting it into the muscles where it can have an effect. I take creatine tomorrow. I haven't really, I'm not an active person. Um, it's magic. It's not magic at all. Uh, and, and this is an important discussion always to have with nutrients. Uh, I, I think we're, we're always very hopeful that a nutrient is going to have a drug like effect. And, and <laughs> that's usually not the case. Uh, I think, uh, I think creatine is uh, quite helpful in a number of different circumstances, and in some cases, the results can almost be magical. I'll give you one example that we don't talk about very much. Uh, we're, we're so good at saying that uh, it's a non-essential nutrient, and you know we are so good at pointing out that you know even though a vegan vegetarian uh, doesn't ingest any creatine, and even though they have uh, reduced muscle levels, reduced blood levels of creatine, they're, they're essentially fine, right? They, they don't develop any sort of a deficiency disease, but there are those who have a um, genetic defect in uh, creatine synthesis. And, and these individuals who do not synthesize creatine are profoundly sick. They're very, very sick. These are children. Uh, and um, the only way to rescue them from these serious consequences is actually creatine supplementation. And, and to, you can return them to health. You can rescue them with the supplement. Uh, so it's possible to you know, have a system that's nearly creatine free, and, and that would be a very sick individual. So coming back to uh, kind of that clinical population and this idea around uh, sarcopenia and the loss of you know, about muscle mass and function, um, where's the value in creatine? You know, it, is, is it, does it work alone? Do you need to add training to it? How powerful is the training effect or the synergistic effect, I should say? Sure. It's, uh, it's an interesting nutrient. And I think, although the, the benefits we're, we're hoping for, increased lean mass, increased strength, uh, increased muscular endurance. I, I think those cross populations. I, I think you're you're going to see different effects in different populations. It's it's probably not helpful to start out saying it, it's going to work the the same across the board. I, I think creatine at its best augments resistance training. So. In, in those who are capable of performing resistance training, uh, I, I think um, creatine will benefit that, that enormous segment of the population. And, and who benefits from resistance training? Well, near, nearly all of us. Patient populations, older adults, young adults, elite athletes, uh, you know, general population. And, and it's quite simple, really. Um, you know, the, the majority of the mechanism uh, is, is fuel-related. Your, your muscles are filled with creatine and phosphorylcreatine. If you ingest the supplement, you increase the amount of creatine and phosphorylcreatine in your muscles, and then you can sustain intense exercise performance a little bit longer. You know, that, that's the, the most simple and, and most direct benefit. And, you know, that creatine, phosphorylcreatine energy system is best and, and it, it, it's at its best during intense exercise performance, especially when there are repeated bouts. And, and that's the definition of some sports, but it's very much the definition of resistance training. Intense exercise, rest, intense exercise, rest, and so on. 
Uh, and that's the energy system that creatine supplementation augments. So we would expect people to, after loading their muscles with creatine, to be able to spontaneously do uh, a few extra repetitions, uh, you know, across exercises, across sets, uh, across their workout, and, and augment their resistance training gains by adding more creatine to their muscles. And it's the, you know, a perfect analogy for carbohydrate loading or a high carbohydrate diet. If we were to examine exercises that rely heavily on carbohydrate for fuel and we added more glycogen to your muscles, we would expect an improvement in performance and we, we would get it. Yeah, I think that's kind of consistently one of the uh, misconceptions where people aren't familiar with this world is um, <laughs> I started taking creative supplementation, nothing happened or I don't feel anything. And it, it's right. kind of, as you said, it, it's not necessarily you feel anything straight away or it's, it's not something that you ingest and you feel something immediately. It's just kind of this gradual over time, you've, you feel those creatine stores and that contributes to your ability to maybe get um, that little bit extra out of your training, which then down the line results in improvements in. I think that's the, I think that's the primary benefit. I, I think it's a mistake to look at any nutrient and, and we could be talking about vitamin D or, or, or vitamin C or creatine. I, I think it's a mistake to look at any nutrient and, and expect, you know, overwhelming uh, pharmacological drug-like effects. Uh, and unfortunately, that's that's kind of how uh, some dietary supplements are, are marketed. I, I will say that that you know creatine is a. Uh, it, it's not just about working harder in the weight room. It, it's uh, you know uh, uh, what we call a, a pleiotropic compound, so it has multiple effects in in in, in many different areas, and for a very uh, deconditioned person or possibly someone with neuromuscular disease, just loading the muscles with creatine will have uh, an effect. You, you know, some of the early research with, for, for one example, muscular dystrophy patients, these children cannot do hard weight training, yet they had increases in, in muscle strength and, and health benefits with supplementation. On that point, when you're talking about this, this kind of pleiotropic effect, um, it also goes beyond the muscles, and you've done a great job of highlighting some of the, the cognitive benefits that may be attained from some supplementation. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I think there's a lot of people leading the way forward with this, but you know, it, it's been very interesting when we all started talking about creatine, the, the opening line of every lecture and every article was 95% of your body's creatine is in your skeletal muscle which gave everyone the right to ignore the other 5%, apparently. And then uh, somebody published a paper. They had access to uh, an MRI, uh, and they, they did use the MRI to do some brain spectroscopy, and they showed that oral supplementation could increase brain creatine levels. And I remember being in the lab and, and bringing it to my uh, PhD mentor, and, and I said to her, see, I told you, it does everything. It even makes you smarter. And we had a good laugh. And then here I am, you know, 15 years later, studying the effects of creatine on, on cognitive processing. Uh, it, it's given me, a, you know, a, a respect for the fact that, um, you know, the body is a, a, a whole. I, I'm, I'm a muscle person, so I, I have a, uh, at times quite a neck down perspective and, and only think about skeletal muscle. Uh, but this has been a, a real pleasure to dive into this arena where most of us were not trained, to be quite honest. Uh, and, and we had to learn, relearn brain physiology and, and relearn how to assess uh, cognitive processing. And, and, and this area is very exciting uh, in terms of creatine supplementation. Yeah, and if you taught muscle physiology was hard, quote, grief, <laughs> brain physiology. It, it's an... Incredible. You know, the first obstacle is how do we measure what's going on in the brain in a live person? And, and, and how do we translate this into something applied? You know, measuring grip strength is something we're all familiar with. <laughs> Vertical jump and a lean mass. But uh, this, is, uh, this has been a, a wonderful ride here, uh, you know, learning, learning the brain. That's what keeps us going is the, the challenge and the opportunity to keep learning, isn't it? So when you talk about uh, cognitive processing, 
Um, I'd imagine there's a lot of subdomains to that. Um, oh, yes. So give us a picture of the complexity of that and, and what you're trying to, to figure out as you're moving forward. Well, I, I would even back that up because the, the complexity starts even earlier. Uh, so while skeletal muscle does not synthesize creatine, right, it's manufactured in your, your liver and, and, and your kidneys and your pancreas, and then skeletal muscle readily takes up uh, either synthesized or dietary creatine, the, the brain is different. It, it, it looks like the brain manufactures its own creatine, which makes sense given the high energy needs of the brain and the high ATP demands of, of, of the brain. It makes sense that it would have some control over creatine synthesis. <clears throat> but, you know, historically, we all know it's, it's difficult to get things through the blood-brain barrier. You know, the, the brain's good at, at protecting itself. And with creatine being synthesized within the brain, it's much more complicated to increase brain creatine than it ever was with the muscle. So at the moment, there's, uh, I think, in our review that we published in uh, the European Journal of Sports Science earlier this year, we identified 12 studies that measured either brain creatine or brain phosphocreatine before and after supplementation. And there were increases uh, in, I believe, nine of 12 of those studies. So it appears like you can get creatine into the brain, but the effect is much smaller. You know, in muscle, we typically say that the increase is about 20% uh, in muscle creatine following creatine supplementation. In the brain, it's much smaller. It, it could be more like uh, 5%. And, you know, that uh, approaches the, the probably the, the error of measurement of, of some of these uh, spectroscopy uh, so there, there's little trouble there, but uh, what's really, really fascinating is if you uh, look at any of these papers and you look at the individual changes, it's, there's another revealing difference between muscle and brain. In, in muscle, everyone increases. It, it might be 5%, it might be 10 or 20 or 30 or 35, but everyone increases with supplementation. In the brain, a few people appear to have maybe a slight decrease or, or zero change, no change at all. And then some people have a, a small but important increase. Uh, and th that's very different from what we've learned in, in muscle since 1992. And we're, we're at the limits uh, of what spectroscopy can do. And, and we only have the one method. With, with the muscle, we could do you know, muscle biopsies and, and spectroscopy. Uh, but with the brain, it, it's just spectroscopy. And it's, it's even further complicated because some labs can only measure total creatine and some can only measure phosphocreatine. And, and with biopsies, we typically provide all that information and, and you know, we can sort out if phosphoryl creatine changed but, uh, or if only free creatine changed. And, and we're often missing that piece of information. So in, in some ways, we, we have a, uh, an increase and enough papers ha show an increase to convince me that there, there's something going on. But on the other hand, it, it's the body of literature is, is quite small compared to the muscle literature. So our, our first obstacle is, does it get into the brain and, and how large of an increase can we expect? And it seems like there's a lot more, as you say, kind of heterogeneity there. Yes, and, and, and there's been some nice papers from Bruno Gualano's lab down in, in Sao Paulo that where they've actually, you know, done such a nice job showing this variability in, in response. And, uh, and another thing that's very telling is that uh, I mentioned vegan vegetarians earlier, and it's clear that vegan vegetarians have less muscle creatine and there's some nice research where you, you can induce this with just a few weeks of a vegetarian diet, but brain creatine appears unaffected. So if you are, I have, if you have high brain creatine and I have lower brain creatine, it's not probably because of differences in our diet, uh, because the brain r responds and synthesizes its own. So we're not really sure where those differences come from, but it, it, it affects the response to the supplementation.
I suppose, what are you seeing in that response to the supplementation? Right. So, you know, we've, we've answered, barely answered one question on if you eat creatine, does brain creatine increase? And now we, we have to answer the, the even more complicated question, and then what happens? So we identified in our review uh, 13 studies, 10 of them showed an increase, in, and I'm speaking very generally, 10 of them showed an increase in brain performance or, or cognitive processing, if you will, and three of them showed no effect. Now, if you try to compare these studies, <laughs> we wind up comparing older adults versus young adults, vegetarians versus meat eaters, people under resting conditions versus individuals who were stressed, very stressed in some cases by either 24 or 36 hours of sleep deprivation, which temporarily induces cognitive, uh, cognitive dysfunction. Uh, so the, the populations are all different and the conditions are all different. On top of that, different dosing strategies, different uh, doses, different dose durations, and then the, the real difficult part is different outcomes, how each lab measures cognitive processing, uh, you know, memory and, and things like that differently. It's very different from the muscle world where we kind of all measure maximal strength the same way or at least in, in a similar way. So it, this says, I'm impressed that the majority of the studies show an effect given the incredible diversity of the methods yeah it seems like that's a really big um kind of point not i don't want to say point of contention but but a kind of big deal in that cognitive space with that variability yep. and who measures what and how they measure it and um you know eeg versus kind of even you know self-reported measures i'd imagine it gets really messy really quickly Yes, and, and th this was in an, er an area that I wasn't, you know, formally trained in uh, during graduate work and, and, and postdoctoral work. Uh, so I, I, in my own studies, I brought in the best uh, research psychologists and, and, and brain people I could for consultation. And uh, it, it's interesting the, the way they will look at the methods of, of so another successful research or another successful lab and... and <laughs> And and simply say, well, I don't measure it that way. <laughs> this is this is not how we measure vigilance. This is not how we measure uh, in memory. This is not how we measure you know cognition. And uh, as a result, in, in instead of people extending the work of other labs, there there is a bit of just doing things differently here. But again, I'll say. Out of 13 studies, 10 of them showing an effect in cognition in some way in all these different scenarios, that, that impresses me because th this is not a, a drug that's overwhelming the system. This is a nutrient, a naturally occurring substance, uh, and it, it looks to be a real benefit. And, and to me, the, the best, and I'm speaking qualitatively, the, the most impressive benefits were in the studies of older adults people who already had some level of cognitive impairment and in the, the stressed adults who had cognitive impairment induced by sleep deprivation. So those people who uh, were sleep deprived and ingested a placebo had greater cognitive dysfunction and, and those people who ingested creatine and, and were sleep deprived, the creatine rescued them from uh, those effects uh, of that stress. Uh, so uh, in individuals with cognitive impairment, I, I think that's, uh, you know, probably the, the, the most um, impressive research. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have an effect in young, healthy individuals. Uh, we just need to be very careful how we assess um, what we mean by benefit. Uh, and, and, and I see this being of, of value uh, even in the elite athlete community. You know, if, if you think of some of the fatigue levels and some of the mental pressure that our athletes undergo during competition, 
uh, fuel for the brain is, is of course, very important. And, and people like Romain Meeson have, have shown this with carbohydrate and, and, you know, for many, many years. So nutrition in the brain is a, a real area. It's a real way to improve performance. Uh, and, and I think creatine fits in there well, even with the lead athletes. We'll come back to um, the, the kind of muscle aspect, but in terms of the dosing, is the dose similar to, uh, is the dose to try and improve cognitive function or cognitive processing the same as the dose for, um, you know, generals improvements in muscle mass or body composition? Uh, I, I wish I could say for sure, um, but um, it's just so easy to get it into the muscle. Like I said, everyone will increase either a small, a medium, or a large amount. Uh, but in, in the brain, uh, we have far less research available to say that we've got the right dosing strategy. And, you know, uh, I think uh, in certain patient populations, they're using very, very high doses to get an effect. Um, but in, uh, in, in average uh, young or, or older adult, uh, I think we're, we're looking at uh, doses that approximate what will increase muscle levels, but we don't know for sure. I, I think we really are, are lacking a true dose response study, and I think we're really lacking studies that have repeated measurements. You know, the, the, the knowledge that muscle creatine is, is relatively stable day to day, you, you know, uh, regardless of your dietary intake, uh, that might not translate to the brain. So during a five-day loading phase, 20 grams per day, if we just measure on, you know, at time point zero and on day five, if we don't see an increase, it's possible that we missed the increase. Uh, or it's possible that the increase would have occurred on day 10. <laughs> And, you know, uh, as invasive as biopsies are, there's a lot of labs that can do them and do them well, but, you know, we can't do them in people's brains. And, and spectroscopy is a lot less available and a lot more expensive. So the, the dose response studies uh, just, you know, haven't happened yet uh, because the, the, product is, uh, the product is inexpensive, widely available, has an excellent safety profile. Uh, and I think uh, many people are, are just inclined to, you know, as a consumer, give it a shot, give it a try, or as a researcher, um, you know, design your study without, you know, um, knowing for sure if that 20 gram dose per day is, is the exact right dose. Yeah, so let's, let's nail that down in, uh, I, I've listened to the Eric Rosen podcast and now I'm dying to try creatine to improve my muscle mass. <laughs> Um, what do I do? Okay, so you, you, you have uh, your first step uh, is to not be fooled into thinking that there are multiple types of creatine on the market <laughs> that are valuable for you to purchase. 99% of the safety and efficacy research is on creatine monohydrate. Most of these other products have no research to support safety or efficacy. Uh, they certainly don't have research to support their sales pitch of better absorption. And, and I'll remind everyone that there is enough research to demonstrate that creatine monohydrate is unbelievably well absorbed from a, a gastrointestinal perspective and from muscle uptake. So you're looking for creatine monohydrate. Uh, now it comes in a powder, it's not very soluble. So uh, the, the standard loading dose of 20 grams per day uh, divided into four even doses throughout the day for five days, that's an effective way to increase muscle levels. It's a bit of a pain in the neck because it, it's not very soluble. So if you stir it into a, a, a glass of liquid, uh, it eventually falls to the bottom and, and it's like somewhat like drinking sand. <laughs> so... You know, it, it depends on the individual and, and how much convenience matters to them. Uh, if you ingest 20 grams per day for five days, you'll increase your, your muscle creatine levels. If you 
don't want to deal with the, the four servings per day, you can ingest uh, five grams per day for about a month and your muscles will get saturated to the same level. It'll just take a little bit longer. You know, the, the analogy of filling a gas tank here, I think is, is fair. Uh, and you can either fill it up very quickly and top off the tank, or, or you can fill it up a bit more slowly, but the tank can only hold so much. So high dose loading to saturate in five days or low dose to saturate in, in an, a, about four weeks time. Uh, there are some things that encourage muscle creatine uptake, um, you, you know, so exercise would be one. I'm, I'm assuming you're taking creatine and you're a physically active individual. So uh, ingesting creatine around the exercise period would be a, a good idea. Uh, it is also um, uptake is enhanced in the presence of insulin. Please don't inject yourself with insulin. <laughs> uh, I think we can accomplish this simply just by taking creatine around mealtime. So, it, you know, the, the natural increase in, in uh, insulin that you get after you have a meal that contains carbohydrate and protein, you can include your creatine at the end of that meal uh, and enhance uptake there as well. The original research didn't even add the carbohydrate uh, you know, and, and protein combinations, and they got very robust increases as well. Um, but um, for most people, if you're going to take four doses per day, it, it's going to land around exercise and around meal time, and I think that's that's a good thing. Another kind of one of the other common uh, conversations that happen with creatine supplementation, you kind of touched on it, is this safety profile. Um, you've done a phenomenal sure. job of giving a great overview. Um, there still is some, are some concerns out there around the safety of it, and um, you know, particularly as it relates to kidney function. Right. So um, there are there are three areas that have been um, picked at the, the the most, and by picked at, I mean from the media perspective. Well studied, I mean from the researcher perspective, and and that's kidney dysfunction, muscle dysfunction, and and, and thermoregulatory problems. We'll start with the kidney. Uh, I, I think there's a basic misunderstanding between two terms, uh, creatine and creatinine. And, and I find this in, in, in the clinical community quite often. Uh, you know, you, your body synthesizes creatine. You, you ingest creatine through dietary sources. You can ingest creatine supplements. It's stored in your muscle uh, where it's involved in energy production. That's all fine. Uh, creatine and phosphorylcreatine are, are uh, degraded in the muscle non-enzymatically. They're excreted, they're exported to the blood and excreted through the kidneys. So what comes out in your urine is creatinine. Now we can use urine creatinine and we can use blood creatinine as proxy measures of kidney function. Uh, and and that, that goes a long way in the, in the clinical world. But it, when you confuse creatine and creatinine, um, you know, it, it really has uh, muddied the water of people's interpretations of what's going on here. Just because there is cre <clears throat> excuse me, creatine coming out in your urine doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your kidneys. It's, it's unabsorbed supplement. So your, your muscles have a limit to what they can absorb. If you are, are you know, taking 20 grams per day and only absorbing 15 then, then we're going to be able to recover creatine in your urine. Um, if you eat a high creatine food, there can be some small changes in your, your uh, blood or urine creatinine levels temporarily. That also doesn't mean you're in kidney distress. You know, just because your kidneys filter something doesn't mean that you're um, adversely affecting your kidney health. So um, this has been addressed in the literature several dozen times using urine creatinine, using urine and blood creatinine, using the, the most sophisticated measurements of, of renal function. And uh, there doesn't appear to be anything there uh, in short term and in longer term investigations. Uh, I, I'm not aware of any clinical trials that have shown, um, you know, uh, that kidney function is adversely affected with this nutrient. 
and and I really wouldn't expect it to because it's it's not a nutrient. It's excuse me, it's a nutrient. It's not a drug overwhelming the system. I, I think what what started here was a case study that was published many years ago. Uh, it was an individual who had um, kidney pathology. They had existing kidney disease, and they were taking an uh, uh, an incredibly nephrotoxic drug. Uh, and for some reason, they started ingesting creatine, and at the same time, their kidney function declined. Um, this was picked up by the media as if uh, you know creatine was was killing people all the world over. Uh, and uh, I think a prior pathology and a nephrotoxic drug may have had something to do with it. Uh, but but over and over again, we've seen this demonstrated in the literature that taking um, recommended doses, either loading doses or, or lower maintenance type doses, has no adverse effects on, on kidney function. You know, with, with the focus of area in, in trying to preserve muscle mass and function, you talked a lot about this idea of maybe having a cocktail and going beyond uh, creating supplementation and bringing in you know other nutrients that may help. Um, what is sure. your what does that look like in your mind? What's that picture of this kind of cocktail to preserve or even uh, improve uh, lean body mass look like? Well, you know, I, I would back it up one step, uh, and 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 I would do this for uh, you know young healthy individuals. I would do this for young healthy you know very busy very stressed professor type people, uh, as well as older adults. Uh, and, and I would say, let's fix your resistance training protocol first, then let's fix your diet and, and then let's fix your sleep. And, and I, I would back up to that level first because, uh, you know, nutrients like creatine are, are there to augment the resistance training response and they're effective, but, uh, you know, without the proper resistance training in intervention, uh, where we shouldn't expect, you know, creatine to make up the difference for poor diet, no sleep, and 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 either missed workouts or or poor workouts. So we have to back up there to there. Once we fix training, once we fix diet, once we fix sleep, that then I I think uh, creatine is is um, and, and this is supported by the literature, and this is supported by. Uh, the recent position stand from the International Olympic Committee that the creatine is going to be effective in augmenting that resistance training response. Uh, the, the second ingredient would be protein. Uh, you know, I, I'm a food first person. Uh, you know, obviously you, you can't get to loading doses of creatine with the diet and, unless you, you're going to eat, you know, 10 kilos of meat per day, you know, or, or five kilos, five kilograms of meat per day. <laughs> so that would have to be from a supplement. Uh, if we are thinking about protein, uh, I think uh, we should go food first. But, uh, you know, I, I don't have a problem with protein supplements if, if timing or, or, or convenience is, is an issue, as long as they're not replacements for whole food proteins and they're actually a supplement. So I think the creatine protein cocktail is probably a good idea. Um, but uh, after that, uh, you know, the, the, the research becomes, um, it really drops off in terms of volume. And, and I think we have to be careful about what populations we're, we're talking about. And, and, and there really shouldn't be any indiscriminate supplementation, uh, even if we're thinking about compounds that we believe are, are relatively safe like uh, the omega fats or, or vitamin D. Uh, I, I think going back to uh, those uh, IOC decision trees is, is very helpful to see, you know, if you as an individual would want to add any of these other compounds. Yeah, that's really important. Um, let's talk about, because the, the IOC decision trees are phenomenal. Um, let's talk a little bit about that and I kind of you know, obviously where the premise came from or, or what they're looking to achieve and, and be as a resource. So um, it, not too long ago, I was invited to be part of a, a panel uh, where the International Olympic Committee said we would put like to put together a consensus on the use of dietary supplements because so many athletes are using them. Let's get the best science and, and you know, come up with a, a consensus. So this document was, this was an amazing process. Each of us had to write a comprehensive review on a particular area. And 
we had to have the review done months in advance, and, and then we went to the IOC, and uh, the, the authors, as well as multiple other clinicians, uh, high-level sports dietitians, and other researchers were there, and we basically argued <laughs> for days <laughs> and uh, came up with a consensus on uh, you know what supplements have enough research for us to say the benefit outweighs the risk that they they have enough evidence for safety they have enough evidence for efficacy and and what other special um, circumstances are there for athletes for instance those individuals for who uh, you know a contaminated supplement could could end their career with a positive drug test so there were there were some special issues above and beyond the general population. But this was an extraordinary experience. The consensus was published, co-published in the International Journal of uh, Sport Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism and the British Journal of Sport Medicine. Uh, and the reviews were published in uh, the International Journal of Sport Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism. And we made it all open access. So if you're on social media, if you, you go on my Twitter, the, the pinned tweet uh, is the links to all the comprehensive reviews and the consensus statement. Uh, and um, I think my Twitter handle is at uh, Eric Rawson, PhD. We also came up with these decision trees, which was the, the original point here. Uh, and these evolved out of the meeting. We never intended to make these, but we thought they would be so valuable to the practitioners and the individuals. And, you know, it's uh, starts with a simple question. Should I use this supplement? There's actually two trees, I should say, one for performance benefits and one to correct deficiencies. Uh, in, in the case of something like creatine, should I use this supplement? You know, what are the inputs into this question? Age, maturation, experience, um, are, are there any training variables? You know, what are your goals? Um, you know, what, what is your, your, your health and so forth. Uh, and, you know, if you say yes, then, okay, what's the evidence of efficacy? Is it anecdotal? Is it scientific? You know, in the case of creatine, we have multiple meta-analyses and a track record uh, that goes back all the way to the early 1990s. So we would continue down the pathway and say, yes, uh, it's safe. Uh, excuse me, yes, it's effective. And then we'd ask the same questions about safety. Are there any adverse reactions? Are there any interactions with medications, uh, which is a, a real issue with dietary supplements, particularly some of the herbs uh, of medication supplement interactions? Something like creatine, you know, we, we really don't see that. So uh, are the doses known? And, and in this case, we, we've done a good job with uh, especially muscle uptake, uh, establishing a safe and effective dose. And, and then some of the questions specific to athletics would be, is it per permitted? Is, is it on the WADA prohibited substance list? Um, the manufacturers, do you know that they have a good history of producing a, a quality product that, that's unlikely to have contaminants? Uh, and, and then, you know, suggesting a trial use period again, particularly for the athletes, but, but for anyone. Just because you said yes and, and you're going to try this, it, it doesn't mean that uh, you're done thinking about it. So a trial use and, and you know, are you achieving consistent, consistent positive results? And then you know, continue to use with vigilance, remembering that these are supplements. They're supplementing your normal diet. They're supplementing your training. You know, one of the things that you do a good job, um, you know, the whole committee does a good job of, of really, in terms of the permitted um, and third-party testing, I think is really important to, to kind of highlight, you know, when someone walks into Walmart or GNC, um, there may be a variability in the quality of, of not only the products, but the brands and the companies that produce those products in terms of getting third-party testing and making sure that they're at a quality um, that you can be sure are, are safe and, as you said, not contaminated. Sure. Then, and this is, you know, there, there's different types of problems uh, that come from quality control and, and they affect I individuals differently. So, you know, it, it, for someone like me, if, if I were to use a creatine supplement and, and there was the tiniest, tiniest amount of a banned substance in there, 
uh, that not even enough to have any effect on my physiology, then I would never know about it. And, and I, I doubt it would create a problem. But if you're an athlete competing in a sport with a zero tolerance policy, you've just flunked a drug test. And, and that can have career ending decisions in terms of finances, in terms of endorsements, and, and you may wind up with a suspension where you miss your moment in time. You know, the, the Olympics only happens every few years, or your team may not make it to the, the finals, you know, uh, or the championship, you know, the next year and when you are suspended. So, you know, the implications can be profound for a contamination, but, uh, you know, not the same for every person. Uh, in some instances, the, the contamination um, could be of something that interacts with a medication. So that may not affect someone who's not taking any medications, but uh, it may uh, affect an older adult who's taking multiple types of, of medications. And, and, you know, these quality control issues are, are unique to the individual, but very, very important to consider as well. Uh, there was a, a recent, uh, and, and I want people to understand that these are not specific to the sports science type products or, or the supplements that have the, the crazy names. Uh, you know, there was a, a paper that came on uh, melatonin and that the quality control was uh, worse than anything I'd ever seen in terms of product to product variability of dose and even dose within the same products, bottle to bottle, uh, you know, several hundred percentage points off. And uh, in some cases, the, the chewable versions of the product had terrible product to product variability. And you would, you would think those would be marketed at children, the chewables. Uh, some of them were contaminated with serotonin and, and this is the, the type of dietary supplement that is being used by all different ages, all different segments of the population, and, and, and no one is thinking of, of quality control issues. Uh, and and it, it's, it's worth slowing down and, and considering, even if you're not an elite athlete who's, who's going to be drug tested, it's worth slowing yourself down and thinking about, uh, is it safe from that perspective? To the point of you, you know, serving on or with this International Olympic Committee is exactly what I wanted to talk to you about at the start of the podcast. And you're at a school that has about 3,000 kids. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a lot of us in this kind of ECR grad student mindset are trained to be or to strive for the R1 level. And if you want to do research, you've got to be at that R1 institution. And you've demonstrated, um, you know, so well that you've been able to have an impact to the magnitude that you have while balancing. Um, the life of, of someone at a college such as yours. Um, you know, <laughs> what is that like? How did you get there? How did you manage to, to navigate that? And um, how are you finding everything now? Well, you know, first, you're, you're, you're very kind. <laughs> I, I've been able to do uh, a, a few things in my career, and I, I've been very, very fortunate, very blessed, maybe a little bit lucky to... Um, meet some extraordinary researchers, some extraordinary educators, some fantastic students, and, and uh, I think I, I stand on their shoulders most of the time. It's, uh, it's interesting, but I, I, I would say that we're all trying, we're all struggling to achieve that balance between service, research, and, and uh, teaching uh, in our field. Uh, you know, every job has a different emphasis but it, I think it, it's possible to be passionate about service at, to the profession and um, research and teaching. And, and I think it's possible to maintain those passions throughout your career. Uh, but you, you have to determine where the emphasis will, will be. You know, if, if you want to publish 50 papers per year, you... Would, it would be very difficult to do that anywhere, but it would be especially difficult to do that at uh, a, a small teaching college. You know, you, you, you would need an army of postdocs and PhD students uh, to, to, you know, allow that to happen. Uh, so 
you know, you need to have a system in place. You know, having goals, you know, to publish is not enough. You need to develop a system where you're generating knowledge uh, and uh, where your students are participating in the process. And, and uh, you know, you can continue to be, I believe you can continue to be active in the lab and active as a, a leader in the profession and, and a, a great educator um, as long as you understand that the emphasis is, is different, you know, from job to job and that you develop a system to uh, allow it to to happen. You know, I think the, these opportunities are, are, are there for all of us. And, you know, in, in yourself, I know you're now working uh, with ACSM. You have a, a presentation at, at the, the annual meeting and you're, you're now on a committee that's going to take some time, but it's going to play to your strengths in terms of social media and disseminating the best quality information. And uh, I think that's fantastic. I think it's possible that you could have, you could serve on a committee that would not lend itself to your strengths and and your passions, and, and that would be maybe a mistake. But I think this one is is great. Y you know, so uh, it's it, it's about you know working hard and and going after your passions, but uh, you take advantage of these opportunities, and and uh, they lead to more good things. You know, I'm excited for this opportunity for you because uh, and I'm excited for it for you and the college. Uh, and and um, it, it you can do we can all do. More than 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 we think uh, if we maintain our passions and, and to develop an efficient system for. You know, getting things done, I'm 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 writing less than I want. Um, but you know, I, I'm I'm writing and and uh, I'm thinking critically less than I want, but I'm I'm getting some done. It, it, it's uh, I think we have the same complaints at at every level and every type of college and 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 medical center and research environment. I think that's the message I was trying to get out of that. In a lot of younger kids coming through grad school or even coming to the end of their training, feel this pressure that they can't. If, if they go, yeah. go to, you know, teaching college, it's, as you said, it's certainly more difficult and you have to build, you know, a, a good team. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely achievable. One of the most important things is to get your students into the lab early. And, and you know, it, it's a bit unreasonable to expect a 16-year-old to understand what research is and what the research process is. Uh, so, you know, when they show up a, as freshmen and they, you know, have something in their mind for what their career will look like. It often doesn't include research because it, they weren't exposed to researchers and, and the research process. So uh, at Messiah College, we have research methods classes for our undergraduates that start with the freshmen and sophomores. And, uh, you know, they connect with uh, other classmates who want to volunteer for research studies, and, and it creates such a nice buzz that, you know, the, the typical response, you know, when the experience has ended is, what can I do next? This was great. I didn't know this existed. What can I do next? Yeah, I think we wait, I think we wait too long to, to show them how much fun we're having. So listen, Eric, again, I, I can't thank you enough for your time um, and, and all your, your energy and your passion and, and your research today and what you've got moving forward. I wish you all the best with it. Um, where can people find you and keep up with you? Uh, I'm, the only social media I'm, I'm on is, is Twitter. Uh, my, my Twitter handle is at uh, Eric Rawson, PhD. So it's at E-R-I-C. R A W S O N PhD. Uh, I, I, it's a professional Twitter feed. So uh, aside from the occasional cartoon and sarcastic comment, uh, it's um, mostly research and, and education and, and related to all things exercise science and nutrition. Uh, and it, it's, there's a good sports science community uh, up on social media who uh, I'm, I'm privileged to uh, be part of and, and to chat with online. 
you can find me at Messiah College and, and find my email and my contact information on the website. Uh, and, you know, if you see me at a conference, in, in, introduce yourself. I'm, I'm, I'm hardly scary. All right, Eric, thanks a lot for your time.